Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner and Alexander Lashley. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Frod, addiction and substance misuse disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to support the podcast, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making this show. However, if you can't, then please just tell your friends about us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on social social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, and YouTube. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. We are pleased today to have a guest named Joel Stern, who is an avid reader of what is wrong with psychiatry and psychology and psychotherapy in the United States. I'm going to be asking a few questions to get us started and then on with the discussion. The first question is, how do you basically regard the whole concept of mental health versus mental illness, Joel? Well, of course, that's a very broad question. And let me just say at the outset that uh, I don't have a professional background in psychology, sociology, or other social sciences. I'm a retired translator. I worked as a freelancer and a government translator for many years. However, I do have a strong interest in human behavior and fields that explore it, such as anthropology, psychology, sociology. And uh, I've tried to read and compare various points of view on these subjects. So to answer your question, I have a difficult time wrapping my mind around the idea of mental health because I still don't understand how thoughts or emotions can be categorized as sick, dysfunctional, toxic, what have you. Yes, there are certain brain conditions or diseases such as Alzheimer's that will affect thinking But in the vast majority of circumstances, I don't believe that it it makes much sense to describe thinking or behavior as sick, except in a very metaphorical sense. Now, here I'm borrowing from such luminaries as Thomas Saz and uh, Peter Bregan. And uh, in the course of our discussion, I will certainly mention other people who have influenced me. But... That's my basic position regarding the concept of mental health. Well, that's a really important position because I think one of the things that has affected this whole discussion is psychology and psychiatry's attempts to be, quote, scientific in a field of human distress, which is not a scientifically provable field. And the idea of what is healthy is a very, very strange idea. To me, healthy means able to connect with other human beings in a way that is considerate and thoughtful. However, that's failure to do that is not what I would call a disease. I also think that one of the things that has really screwed up mental health ideas is the profit motive in the United States where we have a market-driven healthcare system and that there is a hoax that selling people drugs 
will make them, quote, healthy or cure their brains when there's absolutely no proof whatsoever. And in fact, one of the articles that you sent me, as you have sent me so many, Joel Stern, is about that the placebo effect of Prozac and other medications is at least as strong, if not stronger, than the actual drug in terms of relieving the distress that the drug occasioned. But I think that that has a lot to do with the capitalist system. And unfortunately, America as the hegemonic power has had a lot of effect worldwide in terms of this, even though we are only 6%, well, between 5 and 6% of the world's population, and we take 66% of the psych drugs because they're sold so widely there. And I wondered, what are your feelings about this and what could people do to address their mental distress? Again, these are very important and, you know, endlessly debatable questions. But I want to save the uh, effect of capitalism on uh, the so-called mental health industry for later. I want to further go into the concept of mental health and not just mm, discuss theory, but examples from real life. Let me give you an mm -hmm. example of what I mean. I had a discussion last week with a friend of mine about this very subject, I said that it's, I think it's wrong to consider uh, ideas or behavior as sick. And she said, well, what about Jeffrey Dahmer or serial killers? Uh, you know, aren't they sick? And I said, well, their behavior and their thinking are certainly distressing, but let's consider other facts. What about the crew of the Enola Gay that uh, B-29, the dropped the bomb on, uh, Emotion. Now, yeah. the crew members, they, they knew they were going to vaporize tens of thousands of innocent children, elderly people who had nothing to do whatsoever with the war. Are these people, you know, the crew who knew deliberately that they were going to snuff out these lives, can they be considered mentally ill? Or is their behavior normal only because they were given state-sanctioned orders to perform this operation. Another example, uh, Jeff Bezos, obviously you all know who he is. He keeps his workers in unsanitary conditions, treats them like robots. They get COVID, they die. He spends a half a billion dollars on vanity project flying into space. Is this man who is responsible for the deaths and humiliation of his workers, is this someone who's mentally ill? Does the DSM manual cover behavior of capitals, you know, exploiters like that? Another example, the people in West, uh, the mine operators in West Virginia and other Appalachian states who knowingly poison the soil, water, and air of their communities they're not totally ignorant of the consequences of their behavior. Are these people normal in a capitalist society? Yes, because a profit is, you know, uh, a legitimate pursuit. And uh, they're responsible for countless deaths, but serial killers such as Santa's Son of Sam or Ted Bundy, who might snuff out a few dozen lives, they're hospitalized or executed. But people on a higher level, you know, uh, with high-priced lawyers and the sanction of the state, they can get away with their atrocities. That's my point. This, this classification of sickness and health is totally dependent on social and cultural and economic criteria. There's no fairness. 
there's no scientific validity. It's it's really interesting, actually. Suddenly, I'm thinking um, about uh, the fascination that British culture has, and I, I know that American culture has with these true crime podcasts and or serial killers in general, right? And it's suddenly a few things are clicking um, in. Uh, was it in Fanon's, what is it called? Wretched of the Earth or something like that? Yes. He's got this whole, I assume it's a theory. I don't know if you can prove it or, or whatever. But he basically says that in the uh, colonized population, sort of superstition increased, you know, like tenfold because the spirits were something that they could maybe influence or control and they would focus their energy on that rather than their the real uh, threat, right, which was the sort of occupying colonial uh, presence. And that's where a lot of energy went into. And so suddenly I think in your explanation of things just there that maybe that focus on serial killers is a sort of systemic uh, symptom of exactly what you're saying, that the larger players are doing exactly the same thing, <laughs> just murdering people indiscriminately through the uh, pursuit of profit. And then rather than like look at that and feel like it, as a population we can fight back on that, instead we can sort of uh, fixate on these like one or two individuals who do like really fucked up things and we can say, oh, yeah, isn't that person really screwed yeah. up? That's a brilliant point because also we cut down on thieves. There was a big scandal showing that uh, CVS had a whole display of shoplifted items and people were being arrested for shoplifting. There were things like diapers and baby oil, which are expensive. And I realized we are all being ripped off all the time. Electric prices have gone up 14% across the United States. Every place we look, we're getting ripped off. We're getting robbed, but we are focusing on somebody stealing diapers from CVS because it's manageable. I think that's very important. Mary, uh, you and Leah made some very good points that um, I wanted to, you know, I was thinking of bringing up myself. Ralph Nader pointed out this obsession with street crime, which is certainly serious and distressing to those, uh, you know, victimized by it, but corporate crime exacts a far higher toll in mm -hmm. human lives and, you know, uh, sickness and, you know, all sorts of social problems. You know, Ralph Nader brings that up very clearly. And Liam, you pointed out Franz Fanon, the, that calls, uh, brings to mind the, um, the problem with the DSM man manual. Who compiles these uh, criteria for sickness and health? basically well-educated, primarily uh, male, wealthy. MDs. Uh, yes. What about people in non-Western countries? Don't they have standards? I mean, uh, why, aren't, why aren't they contributing to this process? Why is it a Western-imposed model of sanity? Or There's no fairness in that, or logic, or scientific validity. If there's going to be a manual... Let's have a worldwide consensus. Why have a, a strictly Western consensus? Well, it's used primarily in the West, but also one of the criticisms that even the National Institute of Mental Health has made, naturally they don't have a big advertising budget, so it isn't widely known, was that one of the troubles with the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, DSM-5, 
is it says nothing of the etiology. Why do people have these things? You know, it's like pointing to the asthma, which is much higher in black communities and saying, oh dear, they have asthma rather than they're the ones living next to the power plant. They're the ones in the most polluted city. Well, that might have something to do with it. That there is this remarking on an incident with no recognition of what is responsible for hurting people in the first place. And naturally, people who've been oppressed feel oppressed. Duh, you know. Is, um, why, you know, going back to something that was mentioned right at the beginning there, what is the desire of these um, practices to be seen as scientific? I know that was sort of like one of Freud's mm. things, wasn't it? Was to make this, uh, well, to make psychotherapy appear to be I guess I assume it's to do with respectability to be taken seriously. I mean, there's there is also, you know, you, you, you if you are treating people, you do need some kind of evidence. I mean, to a certain degree, science is, you know, trying to, um, you know, prove claims. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, so-called mental health professionals are not immune to the temptation of status seeking money. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Big Pharma certainly prove this. They want to be seen as respectable, authoritative. In fact, I've talked to some therapists. They tend to have a very high opinion of their abilities. I think it's unjustified, but uh, a lot of them are very paternalistic. Look at Freud with his concept of penis envy. Do Do women really feel that? Or does that, you know, did he just concoct this to justify his, you know, airbrain theory? That's just one example out of countless others. Yeah, well, I think that's right. And I think, look, Freud made wonderful, Freud's development of the unconscious is a huge contribution. His discussions of gender are not. As a Victorian male, he really played up the importance of men and penises. Most kids care about breasts. Milk, mommy, they don't care that much about penises. And in the Victorian era, they didn't even see them unless their fathers were molesting them. And the research that they've done now shows all kids want both. Boys and girls both want to be both. And that's reasonable. They all want everything. But he was a product of the Victorian era. Um, yeah. So the key thing is 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 uh, this idea of evidence, right? And um, yes. so the the tricky bit becomes like, how do you know that the thing that you did was the thing that made the difference? And that seems yes. to be a recurring theme, presumably throughout various different uh, therapies, whether that's psychotherapy or psychiatry. So in regards to the psychotherapy, essentially, as far as I understand it, it dates back to what we do as humans, which is we talk and we talk things out. So it becomes very difficult to pin uh, experiments, <laughs> scientific rigorous experiments to what are, you know, potentially just sort of fluffy things. Whereas I assume with psychiatry, because it was sort of running in parallel as a form of care, if you like, that by using medicine, potentially you could be uh, a lot more 
objective or thorough or scientific or evidence-based. But reading, you know, various articles that I'll put in the show notes, yeah, uh, there's Counterpunch and Mad in America and all those kind of websites. There's, yeah, it, there's a statement. Uh, Psychiatry is not something good that needs minor adjustments. Rather, it's something fundamentally flawed and rotten based on spur- spurious premises I've said that wrong, and devoid of of even a semblance of critical self-scrutiny. It is utterly and totally irredeemable. Now, granted, that's one person's opinion, but um, they have extensive experience and and they write as such. Um, It's a pretty uh, strong statement. So do we want to get into reasons, Joel, Harriet, and maybe equally playing the role as a rebuttal? Uh, yeah. remarks uh, in regard to what you just said. Thomas Saz, one of my uh, intellectual mentors, he wrote a book called um, Psychiatry, the Science of Lies. The, the, the basic premise of uh, biological psychiatry, at least, is flawed because um, apart from a, a certain brain diseases, thinking and behavior are mistakenly uh, only uh, metaphorically uh, classifiable as sickness. So if you start off with a fundamentally flawed premise, everything that comes after that, as plausible as it may seem, whatever scientific language it may use, it can't be based on reality. Uh, one of the writers for um, Mad in America, I can't remember the, um, the particular one, it might have been uh, Phil Hickey, he said mm-hmm. that uh, uh, psychiatry is a gigantic cargo cult. If you're familiar with the concept of cargo cult. No. It, what is it? Well, during the Second World War, uh, when American airmen and uh, you know uh, naval personnel served in the South Sea Islands or New Guinea, uh, the natives would observe these personnel. You know, they're flying their airplanes, bringing in their ships, and after the Second World War. The, uh, the native peoples tried to imitate the um, equipment of the American or British or uh, you know, other allied troops by building wooden models of aircraft or ships or you know, air, airports. But these weren't real functioning facilities. They were just imitations that couldn't work. So the author of this article compares psychiatry uh, and, you know, the mental health industry in general to a cargo cult, which uses the language of science, statistics, but it's not a real, it's not an illegitimate pursuit because the premises are all flawed. I think that is a brilliant metaphor. I think so too. We can't call it a science in the traditional Western sense of verifiable trial and error. No, you can't. That's my core view of the the whole subject. However, one can through, you know that these drugs change behavior. They they numb people. They have other effects. But to cure anyone, there is no proof that it cures anybody. In fact, there is proof of side effects, but that's all. And so that it is a bogus science, and it's also a pharmaceutical hoax to sell drugs. One in five Americans takes some form of psych drug and one in 20 American children. So it's a very successful hoax 
And I think that like a lot of capitalist schemes and hoaxes, it's been far too successful and bought into. And one of the reasons it has is because psychopharma is enormously rich. Now, I, I mean, I think one of the things that often gets really confused in this conversation is like, for example, you know, a lot of the SSRIs are no longer under patent. The pharmaceutical companies are no longer making money on it. But still, the ideology of money persists. And other people are making money off of them, even though their originators aren't. So sorry, what was, what was, where was that going? I, I think that, you know, I mean, there, there are certain things that I will counter here, which is nobody is presenting like antidepressants or mental health medications as cures because they are considered chronic conditions that so these are management tools, not cures. Um, so I think it's it's fairly important to make that distinction in discussing um, medication. One, you know, and two, again, like there is a definite pharmaceutical involvement, but I think that is the cornerstone of modern medicine. You know, the cornerstone of modern medicine is that you get your symptoms resolved through medication. Well, I think that's true, but I don't think the cornerstone is, has to be profit. And I know that in the United I mean, but that's States... that's the entire pharmaceutical industry. No, I don't profit. think so, because this is the only country that allows direct-to-consumer drug advertising and also does not have present pharmaceutical research that isn't done by the companies that will profit from it. There is no journal that, there used to be a journal called the Medical Letter, which was edited voluntarily by doctors and published the results of pharma, pharmaceutical drug research not that was not directed by and funded by the people who would profit from it. But you'd have to look for other countries for that. And therefore, there is a profit distortion in anything like the science. Well, don't forget right. the enablers in the media, academia, who go along with this or mm -hmm. ignore, you know, uh, alternative viewpoints. It's not just big pharma. Well, I think one of the really interesting things that was in that uh, one of the articles was that the initial... I think it's the first or second DSM, the way it labeled a mental disorders was uh, reactions, right? A schizophrenic yes. reaction, depressive reaction. So <laughs> back then there was some sort of recognition uh, mm. that the person was having a potentially a natural response, a natural reaction to the circumstance they found themselves in. And then over time, uh, it changed. And yeah, they make the point that like the adverts, like you said, this direct to consumer adverts, that part of the way that they were being framed in the advertising was something that went alongside therapy, right? So as sort of what mm -hmm. you were saying, Ikoi, about management, there was this idea that like the drugs help whilst also having talking therapy, right? But they're not the... Um, an end in themselves. So it's kind of interesting how clearly over time, some of that 
those ideas have changed. Uh, the reaction part of it has been rejected. It's now considered <clears throat> a disorder, uh, schizophrenia, depression, etc. Um, and and that the emphasis has moved very much to that this is these problems that you have, uh, depression, for example, are are purely biological. Right. That there's a brain chemical reaction. And I, I also think it's important to include that the insurance business has had a lot to do with this because when psychiatrists used to talk to patients, however, insurance drastically reduced their compensation. So now they have every inducement. And here I have talked to several psychiatrists about this, not hundreds, certainly, but several where they used to see a patient and get their $300 an hour now it's more like 1500 now they don't won't get that from insurance so they see four or five patients in an hour give them 15 minutes or less talk about their medication renew their prescription and that's it so that any discussion is precluded by insurance compensation so that you have money molding treatment on every level and psychiatrists do say oh you're depressed you need Prozac, you need Paxil, you need whatever, as if that will cure you. But of course it never does. It isn't, this will never cure your depression, but maybe it'll numb you down and make it a little easier to get along. Maybe it'll slow down your reaction time. Whoa, that would be a different statement. Point out that there are certain, uh, I guess you would call it branches of the mental health industry, electroshock, this new uh, therapy, so-called therapy, transcranial magnetic stipulation, stimulation, if I'm using the right term, they claim to be a effective permanent cure for all these so-called mental disorders. There's no management. If they cure you, you don't have to take drugs anymore. And that's how they advertise themselves. No, that's truly frightening because electroshock therapy doesn't work in enormous numbers of people who just lose their ability to speak or other things. Transcranial mag magnetic stimulation is very, very different from electroshock therapy. Could you explain it? It's magnetic stimulation. So what it is focused on is increasing blood flow because that increases brain activity. Uh, those those are not, those, those are, are different Not comparable. Yeah, they are not comparable. And again, what individual uh, facilities may advertise, uh, I've, I've personally never seen it uh, called a cure. I have seen. You, you may have. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Like, you know, I, I'm saying that, the, you know, as with any advertisement, are there people that they're always going to you know, overclaim the benefits of any any treatment that that's part of advertisement to a certain yes. degree. But I I know providers that offer it. They do not call it a cure. They call it it is a different option that people have. But none of them call it a cure. Can't take like certain aspects of you know people maybe advertising you know, a, a certain thing and say that that is the generalized you know, way of, of looking at something. Mm -hmm. 
One of the writers for uh, the Made in America website, uh, again, I think it, it might have even been an Australian guy, he did undergo this transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation and it led to very severe side effects, you know, uh, physical uh, as well as emotional. Now, how general that is for all the uh, persons who want to go on this, I can't say. But it's by no means a completely benign or harmless procedure. You know, it, come, it comes with certain risks, just like any other medical procedure. Right. I would be right. very wary of, of, you know, these, uh, the claims by the manufacturers mm-hmm. of this device or, or ECP or any other, you know, manipulative treatment. Yeah, well, they don't really have a way of testing this to show, and they don't really understand. They, they say you have a brain disease or that you have a chemical imbalance, which is crazy because every, every feeling you have, every experience you have changes your biochemistry and therefore your brain chemistry. So this is hokum. And I think we really are in a field of hokum, even though I have been in practice for about 49 years, and I have seen people improve their lives through talking about what's going on and through hypnotherapy. But but of course, it's not a straightforward thing. I can't say if you have X experiences, you'll have this reaction. And if you talk about this, you'll have that reaction. We have to admit it's not, caring for emotional distress is not a medical issue. It's a human to human understanding issue. And then we get paid less. Well, therapists don't get paid that much anyway, but then the medical field wouldn't be able to boast and, the, and psychopharma wouldn't be able to make billions as they do. Right. Uh, yeah, I just find this whole idea of evidence um, and science it just a sort of very interesting uh, part of all of this because... Uh, one of the sections of the article, it talked about the benefit from therapy versus therapy plus medication was identical. And they make the point that <laughs> um, essentially it just comes down to, you know, do you have a good therapist or do you have a good psychiatrist in some ways? Like he makes the point that there's some highly persuasive individuals have may have personal charisma that may generate higher rates of apparently curative placebo responses. So, and, and this sort of fits to some degree with um, a lot of alternative therapies, which you can't, you know, that would fall under the category of woo-woo, right? Which is like, yeah, it's yes. not scientific, <laughs> reject it, blah, blah, blah. And like, who knows whether any of that stuff works, but certain people go to um, uh, an alternative therapy um, that would be classed as woo-woo and they come out feeling a lot better. And it may well just be entirely because someone was listening to them and that that person seemed very kind and attentive. And it would be, I mean, maybe it can't be reduced to something as simple as this, but it would be kind of hilarious if <laughs> a lot of the psychiatric thing just boils down to, you know, connecting with another human being and being able to talk out your problems and that that was the thing that differentiated between good therapy and therapy that doesn't work. Well, I think that that's part of it for sure. But I know as a hypnotherapist, as well as a psychotherapist, people can have behaviors that are changed by what they realize 
in hypnotherapy. And hypnotherapy is just distracting yourself from the daily affairs of daily life enough to get in touch with deeper things. So, for example, I, I told this to Joel, I had a client who came to me with premature ejaculations that he wanted to, he wanted to change that. And his girlfriend wanted him to change that. And <laughs> it just reminds me of a comedy sketch. Uh, this guy goes, well, premature for who? You know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, ex- exactly. exactly right for me. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, he was dissatisfied too. Sure. And I asked him, and I'll change their names a little just in case he's listening, but I asked him, well, what is P? He kept referring to my PE, my PE, my girlfriend's upset about my PE. And I said, well, what does PE stand for you? For, for you? And he said, oh, Patricia and Elizabeth, my mother and my sister. Well, that was helpful because then when we explored his relationships with his mother and his sister, we found out that he really couldn't stand up for himself for long. He folded. And realizing that he just, he couldn't stand up. And working on that and in using words like saying, you're a stand-up guy, I'm glad you could stand up for yourself. It's important to stand up for what you, you believe in and so on. You are an upright citizen. He got over it and he was able to cure it. But there, I'm not saying that was scientific. But finding out sometimes on a deeper level what some behaviors that you want to change mean to you, why you hold on to them, is transformative. Well, can I make a comment? Sure. I certainly believe in the value of sincere, caring human contact, but how often is that characteristic of uh, the so-called therapeutic relationship? I think there's almost inherent power imbalance. Human beings, unfortunately, tend to, how should they say it, categorize each other as lower or higher or what have you. And I don't think people in the mental health industry are immune to this. To give you an example, I saw bioenergy, bioenergetics therapist many years ago because I had problems with self-esteem. And for some reason, she told me in one session, you're a tough case. I felt immediately denigrated, humiliated, and devalued. I gave, my, I gave it up right then. I decided never to see a therapist again because I, I, I saw she had no reason to say that. How can, how can a trained PhD in psychology tell a client something so denigrating? This is a real problem with the whole field, the problem of the whole field. If there's going to be some kind of treatment of emotional distress, I think there should be non-judgmental peer self-help groups. I don't believe in this authoritative, top-down relationship of expert to uh, defective client. I think that's a good idea. You know, one of the things they do to counter that in France is if you are a therapist, a psychiatrist, or anybody in the field of, let's call it, quotes, mental health, you have to be in therapy for five years. You can take then five years off, and then you have to go back in your own therapy so that you can know what's you, and you can have the humility to face that problems are not your clients alone, but yours. It's 
Freud actually said, physician, heal thyself, you know, and he chose as his analyst, his psychiatrist, no, he really his therapist, his psychoanalysts, people who had been through psychoanalysis themselves and benefited. And that would be something of an antidote to the hierarchical notion that some people in the field have, the humility to know this is you too, honey. Let me ask you a question to all of you. Do psychiatrists, uh, licensed social worker, uh, clinical social workers, professors of clinical psychiatry, whatever you want to call these people, do they have a superior understanding of human behavior? Who gives them this authority? How do they arrogate to themselves this power? Why not give this authority to cultural anthropologists who have a very broad understanding of human culture? Why not give this authority to philosophers who, you know, spend their lives in, uh, you know, investigating uh, cognitive processes? Why are psychiatrists and other so-called mental health professionals given this power? Who granted it to them? Well, you know, was it, I mean, how did, how did it arise and why is it continuing despite all the fallacies and proven failures? I don't understand this. Well, we live in a hierarchical society where, according to Althusser, authoritarian families, authoritarian religions, and um, authoritarian education prepare people for the lines of dominance and submission. And so when other people assume authority, they assume, they assume submission. Look at this adulation in the United States, which ostensibly had a revolution against this, the adulation of the queen. And How the British, dare you? <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> and the British spending a hundred thousand, no, it's a hundred million dollars a year maintaining this group of people. And in the United States, we're worse than England, at least in the Independent and in the Guardian, in Britain, they covered the demonstrations against this and the arrests, but not in the United States. Why do people do this? Why would they adulate somebody they pay for when they're losing a thousand pounds a year on average every single British citizen because of the inflation and other problems in England? I mean, wow. I think Why it starts, do people do that? I think it starts in school. I think, you know... Um, I think we've maybe mentioned this before, but, you know, equally, you've mentioned this key word compliance, and that's really the meta lesson mm. of school, isn't it? It's that mm. you be must, good. yeah, be good, obey. Um, and so when you have that sort of on an institutional level, this sort of mass, yeah, mass compliance, it then just sort of that is life then, you know. <laughs> it snowballs from there, basically, that there is there is a teacher and that they know better and you know you're supposed to just sit here and take it um yeah and not I think that's use logic you know i i have a dear friend a very dear friend who grew up sort of as a street urchin his parents were very depressed so he climbed out the fire escape and hung out with the other kids on the street till all hours of the morning and um he was from a religious jewish family an orthodox family and he knew Yiddish from home. He didn't speak English at home and he knew Spanish because he basically hung out a lot with the 
Puerto Ricans down the block, you know, right down the hall from him because they were nice to him and they were home and they were lively, nice people. And he only spoke those two languages. So when he got tested at school, he obviously didn't do so well since he didn't know the language. And so they put him in the dumb classes. And then when they give standardized tests in fourth grade, it turned out he was a genius. And at first, of course, they figured out he was cheating. They figured it. But then they kept testing him and he was a genius. So he got a scholarship to the yeshiva, the religious school. And his parents were so flattered. It was such an honor. And he had been used to really operating on his own, a real street kid. And in the religion class, the guy was talking about the religious stuff they talk about. And he said, wait a minute, that don't make sense. And you know, <laughs> He got sent to the principal who was a rabbi. And the principal said, you know, Alan, why are you here? And he said, he was talking this stuff, it didn't make it. And the rabbi hit him across the face. So he hit that rabbi right back across the face because his father had said to him, don't go looking for trouble, Alan. Anybody whops you, you get him back, right? And he immediately got expelled. He wasn't brought up in those lines of dominance and submission and subordination. And so he was ousted. Oppositional defiant disorder. Right, oppositional. Drug him. him. Exactly, exactly. Drug him. Well, I, I thought also, Joel, that there was almost a sort of, it was like some sort of Zen story, your um, experience with therapy. It's like <laughs> in the decision of like, screw this, I'm, you know, I don't need this. Like there's a, there's a empowerment <laughs> in that, like the therapist yeah, sort of did a bad, good job. <laughs> I yeah. saw the emperor's clothes. I've had the other experiences too. But that was one of the things that stick out in my mind. Well, if you're set up as an authority, people bow before you, even though you don't deserve it. Go on, Equa, you were going to say something? Oh, no, uh, it's just interesting, you know, how, how people respond differently to, to certain things. You know, because I, I had, you know, one client, he wasn't mine, but he was talking about um, his, his therapy session and, you know, his therapist made a similar comment which he took positively is like you know uh, all the 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 troubles that I've gone through like because he had pretty severe uh, PTSD but he saw this a recognition of you know the fact that he had been suffering rather than like being being felt feeling like it was denigration but I think those things also are dependent on context and the rapport that you have with your therapist and tone and the body language and all those kind of things that you pick up on right right which are all personal things and not medical things and medicine has a terrible trouble my father was the chairman of the pediatrics department at albert einstein and he said to me the hardest thing to teach young doctors is what stands before you is not a disease this is a child. Do you realize this is a child? And for most of them, it, it was very difficult to realize that. Well, we have a reductionist, bio, uh, biologically uh, oriented medical system and mental health industry that treats people as you know, uh, syndromes, you know, as, as cases. They're not human beings. You know, I was, I'm a tough case. I'm not a human. I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm a human being. 
perhaps more intelligent than you are, and you call me a case. It's very, very denigrating, but it's, it's common. It is. It's common that people forget themselves within a hierarchical system, which we have. And for a lot of people in the mental health field and in medical fields, they are wildly inflated with their own knowledge. I remember my father telling me that when he was doing rounds at the hospital, they were doing rounds because this child had a bizarre green growth in his nose and they were talking about different diagnoses. And my father said, don't you know, kids stick crayons up their nose. It's a green crayon. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, sure enough. I am. I have a, there was just this, this bit in the article in one of those articles, uh, which was sort of fascinating. Um, they were talking about getting life insurance and I assume, uh, I didn't, pay attention i assume that they were previously a psychiatrist um and part of the process was that the insurance company had to come around because he was insuring his life for like a million dollars or something like that Mm -hmm. and they took um urine samples and all this sort of stuff and the lady said to him wow you're the first person um first uh, psychiatrist i've i've insured who uh isn't on uh antidepressants (laughs) <laughs> and and the, the point that this person makes in this article is that <clears throat> this insurance person represents potentially a significant portion of um, mental health professionals. And so they extrapolated from that that, you know, there could be a huge number of um, psychiatrists taking these medications. And it struck me as like, oh, that is actually drinking the Kool-Aid, isn't it? So to what yes. degree... Uh, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, taking the medicine. It's like, to what degree is someone compromised or not by taking the substances they're also administrating? Is that a problem or is that not a problem? I mean, would you say that like an internist that takes insulin for his diabetes is a compromised doctor? But but this is, this is, this is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, this is the issue, right? Is that are those comparisons fair and accurate? that as in insulin, diabetes, because that is always clearly something that gets talked a lot about in psychiatry as a comparison to uh, explain how stuff works in that world. And again, this would be great if like psychiatrists want to come on the show and talk about it, because that's exactly where a huge part of this divide, the anti-psychiatry movement jumps on exactly that example you just gave because they would say it's not a fair comparison and that it it, well i mean it depends on you know depression comes from very many sources like for example it's known that if you have severe pneumonia that can fuck up your serotonin imbalance i've known people who have suffered you know whether it's post-covid or before even from severe pneumonia where you know a short stint with ssris helped greatly right um so it you know again like there are various causes to any given condition and part of what's difficult, I think, about the mental health condition is also just trying to figure out 
right? Uh, what the causes are. Are there some physical causes? I know a lot of people, you know, again, bringing diabetes is, you know, an example where managing, you know, finding out that they were diabetic, managing their blood sugar actually greatly helped their mental health, right? Um, so it's, you know, so again, like, is psychiatry, is medicine in general a really stressful job in our society? It absolutely is. Right. The um, One of the previous guests, Renee, I uh, can't remember her full name, but her whole thing, you know, coming off benzos for <laughs> like a decade, it, even mm. for her, her perspective, and, you know, she wasn't a, a medical professional, but she was someone who'd been through this whole process. Her her feeling was that medication is great in the short term, and because it can help you uh, sort some things out. But long term, it it's it really um, for her at least it was not what she thought the <laughs> direction of travel should be for her or for anyone. Um, and that's one of the interesting things again with this comparison is that yeah, sure. Uh, diabetes, insulin is management, can keep you going to the end of days, right? Yes. Whereas what they're saying in a lot of these articles is that the long-term evidence for these drugs, whether it's uh, depression in particular, uh, it seems to be lacking that long-term it actually helps. It's not the equivalent of insulin. In fact, it's it's worse. Uh, again, if you take these articles at uh, 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 face value for having the evidence they're saying that long term these drugs just don't don't work i mean ultimately one of the one of the reasons i bring up diabetes is because you know you cannot manage diabetes with medication alone you absolutely cannot you have if you do not correct your lifestyle your dietary habits your physical activity you, it, it, it is a condition that will get worse despite medication. Yes, that's true. And in therapy, you do have to change your life as well. But right. one of the things that both Renee said, and also that many others have said, like Johan Hari, for example, in his book, Lost Connections, and also our guest, Higgins from her book, Girl on the Bridge, and others have said is that what really helped them through was the connection, not the medication, was connection with other people in a way that was kind and meaningful. And that isn't factored in, and it isn't, of course, sold. And going to a Psychiatrist doesn't necessarily give you that no. at all. And going to a therapist sometimes doesn't need either. Well, it's just something that uh, you have said before, Ekoi, which is that part of the reason to err on the side of caution to be um, somewhat ambivalent slash, you know, putting your foot in the pro-medication camp is just that giving people options is the most important thing, right? And right. there's definitely a question here about stigma because um, it goes both ways, right? Like as one of these articles makes the point that uh, there was this 
you know, well-intended attempts to destigmatize mental health. But when you have a sort of biological basis for your diagnosis, actually what that does is it actually stigmatizes people more because it's like there's yes. something wrong with that particular individual. They're, yeah, they're genetically screwed and then you get into eugenics, right? <laughs> so so there's a stigma there. But there's also a stigma that happens I mean, with this stuff. Stigma, there's, a, there's a stigma to vulnerability anyway, whether physical, mental. We, we are a society that hates the vulnerable. So I don't necessarily think that making it physical makes the stigma any better or worse per se in a society that says that vulnerable people are you know disposable people right yes that's a capitalist value everyone has to be in the commodity process but we don't have those values here yeah and there is a, a quote to maybe close this out the director of the national institute of mental health um from 2002 to 2015 acknowledged whatever we've been doing for five decades it ain't working <laughs> and when i look at the numbers the numbers of suicide the numbers of disabilities mortality data it's abysmal and it's not getting any better mm -hmm. yeah because the society is collapsing american empire is collapsing and people are in trouble but i do think that this is a really important discussion and i am grateful to you joel stern for bringing these issues well, up. Well, it's very stimulating. I enjoy it. I'm not, you know, I'm not dogmatic. I'm just a layman trying to understand the world around me. And, you know, uh, I'm willing to be proved wrong, you know. A massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmas, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Wig Shaker, and Ethan Spamin. If you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And you can hear more from Harriet on her radio show called Interpersonal Update. It's on Wednesday afternoons and in the WBAI archives.